Good morning. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for being here. Um, it is a privilege to be able to open the Word, to study it with you, to learn it with you, and then change with you. That's what God does. He uses His Word to change us, to make us more like His Son. So we are looking forward to that. As Pastor Steve read earlier, we are in Psalm 50. So if you close your Bibles or if the screens on your device went out, you can swipe up or you can open your Bibles and turn to Psalm 50. We're going to be there today. We are officially in spring. I know you looked out your windows or drove here and thought it was Northeast Ohio's cruel joke in entering spring. We are, in fact, getting closer to spring. Some of you may have even gone on spring break with your kids or families. We're getting close to summer. So what do we do then? We, we take vacations, and we go to pleasant places. We, we, we get away from what we've been doing, and we try to rest and relax. And in your mind, you may have that place of where that is. It could be far, far away from here. It could just simply be stopping doing what you normally do. I'm guessing if we had to think hard, there are places that would not fit that description of rest and relaxation, of being able to unwind. For example, the dentist is probably not a place where you would think that you would get much rest and relaxation. In fact, that's probably one of the last places you would want to be. Another place you might not want to be or a place that probably isn't going to create a lot of rest and relaxation to you is the courtroom. The courtroom. Now, the weird thing about a courtroom is that while you may not get rest and relaxation, it is amazing how many people are entertained by the courtroom. Just do a Google search at some point at how many television shows or movies have been made surrounding courtroom dramas. I stopped at 35 with the TV shows and 60 with movies. In fact, there is so much entertainment that's been made out of courtroom. In fact, there's a TV channel, Court TV, devoted to watching courtroom. In 1994 and 1995, one of the highest rated programs in the United States was, in fact, a courtroom trial, the O.J. Simpson trial. And if TV and movies really aren't your thing, if you like to read, some of the best-selling novels and plays are surrounding courtroom dramas. To Kill a Mockingbird, classic. Inherit the Wind, Twelve Angry Men. There's just something about the courtroom that is entertaining. It's riveting. Psalm 50 is a courtroom drama. I don't know if you picked up on the language, but there is courtroom language all throughout. And so as we read Psalm chapter 50, we are entering a place that has a judge. We're entering a scenario where there are witnesses. There is a prosecution. There is an indictment. And there's a verdict. At the end of this scenario, the end of these courtroom dramas, and, th and this isn't the only one, by the way, in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there's actually similar scenarios, and theologians call these covenant lawsuits. Covenant lawsuits. You'll find parties 
to the conflict, summoned to court, witnesses called to observe the execution of justice, a judge who sits to hear the evidence and then renders judgment, either righteous or wicked. Now, there's something significant you should notice about this particular courtroom scenario. And this is really different than what we understand here in American, in the American judicial system. The prosecution and the judge are the same. The prosecution and the judge are the same. Keep that in mind. We're going to talk about the implications of that in just a moment. But I want to encourage you, as we talk through this, please stay with me till the end. Because where your minds might be going, they might not be going far enough. And that's, a, that's something that we want to look into God's word and to see just how far we should go when we think about God as our judge. So we've read Psalm 50. In the first six verses, we really see kind of like the beginning of the court. You know, if you've been or you've watched a court uh, a proceeding, you have all rise, right? And everybody stands up. So verses 1 through 6 are kind of like the all rise, God the righteous judge enters. Okay? Verses 1 through 6. The mighty one, God the Lord has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. You see in verse 1 that this is no ordinary judge. There's actually three names given to the judge here. There's two of them that are actually somewhat common in Middle Eastern religions, something that their audience here would have been familiar with. But this judge is named with a specific name, the Lord. So it's God, but it's God the Lord. He is the judge. And how is this judge described? Well, we see in verse Two out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. You don't think of judges as beautiful, but this judge has beauty, and where he resides has beauty. Verse 3, may our God come and not keep silence, fire devours before him, and it is very tempestuous around him. This is a judge that fire and stored rage around him. There's awe that surrounds this judge. He's a beautiful judge, but he's an awe-inspiring judge. Looking back at verse 1, we see the fact that he summoned the earth from the rising into the setting of the sun. This is a mighty judge. It's a judge whose power is all-encompassing. Have you ever heard the phrase, might makes right? This is a judge who has both might and right. His might does not make what he does right. He is governed in righteousness. In fact, the heavens testify this. Verse 4, he summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. In verse 6, and the heavens declare his what? His righteousness. So there are witnesses to the proceedings going on, and these witnesses, heaven and earth, testify to the righteousness or right standing of the judge. Okay? This is not an arbitrary judge. This is not a fickle judge. 
This is not a judge who can be bribed. This is a judge who is righteous, but he is also very mighty. Now the witnesses, as we said before, this is all the heavens and the earth. The witness to this court proceeding are all the creation that's been summoned to witness what's going on. Now the defendant here is the nation of Israel. You see, all of earth has been invited to witness what's going on, but there's really one defendant, and that's the nation of Israel. Verse 5, gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Now, in the past, we've discussed the covenant that Israel and God have, were joined in. And we really don't have time today to, to really dissect that covenant. But it was given at Sinai, Mount Sinai, through Moses. And really, it's the law and the Mosaic system of worship. Even though all creation is summoned, Israel alone is about to be indicted for their failure. Look at verse 6. I'm sorry, look at verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. Again, more judicial language. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. So we've set the stage for what's about to take place. Verse 6 makes it plain what's already been stated. God himself is judge. But also keep in mind what was said before. God is also the prosecutor. This is no court proceeding like you and I might be familiar with. We walk into a court and we want an unbiased judge. This is a judge who's making the accusation. Now, if that's the case, and it is, what's true? Well, first of all, any indictment any accusation made against the defendant is going to be certain and not open for debate. When the prosecution speaks, that's it. You can have a defense, but the judge, he's not going to change his mind because he's the prosecutor. Second of all, and as you're thinking through this, the character of the judge and the prosecutor must be impeccable. If he's going to prosecute and judge at the same time, his character must be impeccable. But we have the witnesses of heaven and earth to show that he is righteous. Right? We already know this. His character is impeccable. Now let me say something, and I don't mean to be glib by it, but this is really the third implication. When the prosecution and the judge are the same. If you're indicted... This isn't really a, a theological term, but I think it's accurate. If you're indicted, you're toast. That's it. Now, we said here that Israel is being called to the court scene. Now, as you read, you may have seen that there's really two different groups within one covenant Israel. And I think that's appropriate. There's a group in verses 7 through 15, and then there's also a group in verses 16 through 21. I want to talk about these two groups. And I think we should look at these two groups differently, even though they're part of the same, what we would call, covenant community. They're all under the same agreement. They're all bound in relationship to God. Yet there's two groups within one bigger group, okay? 
So that first group, I would call the misunderstood. The misunderstood. And the reason why I call them that isn't that the witnesses are misunderstanding them, it's that they themselves are misunderstood. And really, they misunderstand two very important things. The first thing they misunderstand is worship. Now, God calls them his people in verse 7. And he testifies against them, but he claims, first of all, that he is their God. So this is a judge who's saying, I am your God. I'm going to testify against you, but I am your God. He's going to testify against them, but he's not going to indict them for the practice of their worship. Look at verse 8. I do not reprove you, and your translation might be a little bit different. That word reprove is actually a legal term. It's one that means bring charges against you. In fact, your translation may say that. I do not bring charges against you for your sacrifices. And your burnt offerings are continually before me. You see, in verse 21, God says, These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought I was just like you. I will reprove you. Same word there. So he's making an indictment in verse 21, but he's not indicting them in verse 8, at least for their sacrifices. Now stay with me here, because this is so important to understand. Their sacrifices were being offered over and over and over and over again. And they were described here as burnt offerings, which I think is really key. God did not have a problem with them offering sacrifices for their sin. That's what the law demanded. But it seemed that the people believed that God somehow needed these sacrifices. Like, like God was somehow lacking if he didn't get them. That's why he responds in verse 9. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. Why bulls and goats? Well, those are animals that were sacrificed for sin. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. God isn't lacking anything. Okay? What these people were doing, and this is why they were understood, they misunderstood worship because they saw their worship to be appeasing this insatiable God. This God whose hunger could not be quenched. More sacrifices, more sacrifices, more sacrifices. Bring it, bring it, bring it. That's what they understood God to be. And in doing so, they could do one of two things. Number one, make sure he doesn't get really mad at you, like the pagan gods, right? Toss the virgin into the volcano. Let's appease the, the volcanic gods here, you know? Somehow, if we keep offering these sacrifices, he's not going to get mad at us. Let's keep offering it again and again and again. But then also, a god like this can be manipulated. Hey, we kept our end of the bargain. Now you pony up for us what we want. So this was a god that was just, this was a, a worship where their, their, their sacrifices were so abundant, but 
they, they seemed to misunderstand what it was that God was wanting from them as they sacrificed. So in one way, they were going through the motions. Do you know how easy it is to go through the motions? Today, some of you may have been going through the motions. Maybe you're going through the motions right now. We just sang of this God as our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. And we're going to see all four of those today. But man, if we don't think about what we just called God, we're just going through the motions. So they misunderstood worship. But I also want to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt here. Because I think there's language in verse 14 that helps us understand not only what God is looking for, but also perhaps what these Israelites were too preoccupied with. Look at verse 14. He says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. We know God's a holy judge. He has wrath against sin, to be sure. And so he says here, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And, and maybe your minds can go to different passages where, where, where God tells someone, you know, it's not, you know, to obey is better than sacrifice. For example, in 1 Samuel 15, right? The heart attitude behind the sacrifice is more important than the sacrifice itself. But there's language here in this psalm that would point us to not just an attitude of sacrifice, but the act of sacrifice itself. Now, here's what I mean with this, and here's where I'm going. We don't have time. But we could go back to, if we had kind of like, rewind, we could go back to Leviticus chapter 1 and read verses or chapters 1 through 5 and see the sacrificial system that was ordained in this covenant. And there's different kinds of sacrifices. There's burnt offerings, but there's also a category of sacrifices that are thank offerings. Do you know what the difference between a burnt offering and a thank offering is? In a burnt offering, it's mandatory. If you are in the covenant community, you must offer a burnt offering for your sin. A thank offering, however, was voluntary. It wasn't mandatory. A burnt offering was for the purpose of covering for sin. A thank offering was done out of gratitude for God's loving kindness. A burnt offering, man offers the sacrifice. He leaves it there. In a thank offering, the sacrificer actually consumes part of the sacrifice itself. It's a meal. Where when the sacrifice is given for thanks... It wasn't just that the priests took that offering. It's that they sat down and ate it together. They didn't do that with burnt offerings for sin. They did that with thank offerings. And in burnt offerings, man needs the sacrifice. He needs it. We read in Psalm 50, God doesn't. He doesn't need bulls and goats. The world says, in a thank offering, God wants the sacrifice. Burnt offerings, man needs this sacrifice. Thank offerings, God wants this sacrifice. Yes, he wants a burnt offering, but he wants a heart of thanksgiving. You see, I said earlier, maybe we should give a little bit of the benefit of the doubt in that do you know how easy it is to be preoccupied with your own sin? 
Living righteously. Do you know how easy it is to be so preoccupied with your own sin that that's all you can focus on when you think of worship? Like when you get to prayer, you start confessing sin and you can't get beyond it. I was doing a Bible study with a man several years ago. And the way he described his experience prior to salvation was that when he attended church, it was like one big monument to guilt and shame. Because when he came, wherever it was he went to church, it was like this, this, this score that he could never meet. And what if it's that these Israelites kept offering burnt sacrifice after burnt sacrifice after burnt sacrifice because they were so preoccupied with the sin that needed to be covered? And truth be told, we could be the same way. I mean, at what point do we ever stop confessing? Like, we could stop everything that we're doing right now and confess and confess and confess and confess and confess. And the more our minds go back to, to the sins that we've committed, the more that we could confess, right? Does God want that? Because guess who becomes the focal point when we do that? We do. Have you ever met a person like that where half of the conversation consists of them apologizing to you? Oh, I'm so sorry, I forgot. Oh, I'm so sorry, I forgot. It's just like, it's okay, it's okay. God hates sin, to be sure. But God would have you to go beyond the sin that he's covered and give thanks. And that's what thanks is, and that's what God's asking for. Does God want us to fixate on our sinfulness? Or would he have us go further than our need for the atonement? Which is true by celebrating who he is and all that we can thank him for. After all, he calls these people his people. And he says, I am God, your God. And so it was possible to become man-centered in the offering of sacrifices where God would have his people look not just to their own sin, but also look to him as their God and give thanks. He's not just any God who demanded sacrifice. So in verse 14, what does he say? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I shall rescue you and you will honor me. Those who failed to thank God or failed to see him in a relationship with them would probably assume that it was God who wanted them into trouble to begin with. I mean, isn't that what we deserve when we sin? This is kind of like the Job philosophy that Pastor Tim's been working through. You know, this, uh, this concept of Job that bad things happen because you're sinful. So God's people, if they're in calamity, why would they call out to God? I mean, it was their sin that brought it on anyways, right? That's probably what God wants. And yet, God says, call out to me in the day of trouble, and what? I will rescue you. What judge does that? Think of that. Judge, prosecution, who's also offering rescue to the defendant. It's not just an empty promise. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. So you have this misunderstood group the first group addressed by the judge who failed to understand how worship or even how to really relate to God. The second group, starting in verse 16, addressed by God, the judge was not like that at all. 
In fact, in verse 16, you see a shift in tone. But to the wicked. Okay? So the judge offers rescue. But to the wicked, what does he say? And these wicked here are those who rebelled against God. What were these wicked like? What were these wicked like? Well, first of all, they were worshipers. They were worshipers. To the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? Who does that? Do the pagan Philistine hordes do that? Was that Goliath of Gath? Was that the witch of Endor? No. The covenant community does that. But there was a part of this covenant community that was wicked, that was rebellious, and yet looked just like everybody else. At least they did at worship time. You see, in verses 17 and 18, we see them hating what they should have loved and loving what they should have hated. They worshipped with their mouths, but their affections and values were completely off. Verse 17, you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Here, their hatred was directed towards the instruction and how they rejected God's word. And instead of hating evil, they actually found themselves loving and accompanying evil. Verse 18, when you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. Not only did they hate what they should have loved and love what they should have hated, but their speech gave them away. Verse 19 and 20, you let your mouth loosen evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. In James chapter 1 and verse 26, we're told that if someone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, his religion is useless. There's a sense to where you have the person being revealed by their speech. In one way, verse 16, they were affirming the covenant. In another way, they really had no right to speak of the covenant because of what they were doing. They were tearing down others, even to the extent of tearing down their own family. Now, whatever this is, this is not an offering of thanksgiving that we read of in verse 14, is it? This is the antithesis to the offering of thanksgiving. And then finally, what were they like? They were worshipers. Well, outward worshipers. They hated what they should have loved. They loved what they should have hated. Their speech gave them away. But fourthly, they misunderstood God himself. They too were misunderstood like the other group, but they misunderstood God himself. In verse 21, these things you've done and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. When I kept silent, you thought I was just like you. You know, there's some potent statements in this chapter, statements that really don't need much explanation just because they're so self-evident and our, our brains understand really what's going on here. When God was silent, the wicked thought, he's just like me. You ever play that game Jenga? Okay, you know the Jenga, all those little pieces? Okay, what, what do you do with Jenga? You know, you, you poke out a piece and, and the whole thing's supposed to be standing up after you poke out the piece, right? 
So we poke out a piece, everything's good. Poke out a piece, everything's good, right? You keep poking out those pieces, and pretty soon there's holes all over the thing. Man, that thing's still standing, right? You poke it out, it's all good. Poke it out, it's all good until, ah, hopefully the other guy who's playing with you pokes out the wrong piece and kaboom, the whole thing comes down. This is what's going on here. In the morality statue or the morality tower, these Israelites who knew the covenant, who were testifying with their mouths, just poking out different ways where they could express their wickedness. You know what's funny about God? When God is silent, he allows people to see who they really are. He lets them alone. You know, that proverbial, the teacher has left the classroom. What are the students going to do? The teacher says, I'll be back in 15 minutes. First 10 are chaos. The, first, the last five are recovery, right? When God is silent towards our sin, please, may we never mistake that somehow he's winking at it or he's too preoccupied with other serious matters on the planet or somehow he's okay with it. He approves it. I mean, after all, we can say God bless you in the same breath as cursing someone. Morality, honoring godliness, godly living, is not this Jenga tower where you kind of push it to the limit. And then you get upset when the tower collapses and God somehow meets out judgment. You see, back in verse 3, what does God say? May our God come and not, what? Keep silence. He's been quiet. He's allowed them to live in their sin. But the judge is here. Court is in session. And so, verse 21, I will indict you I will bring charges before you and state the case in order before your eyes. You will see it. The prosecution is righteous and it is the judge and there is no debate. And so in verse 22, look what we're, look what we're told. Now consider this, you who forget God. When we have this word forget, let's not mistake it as like, oh, you know, I, I meant to get groceries, uh, but I forgot to stop at the store. It's not that kind of forget, okay? This is those who willfully reject God. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you into pieces, and there will be none to deliver. Tear you into pieces. That word is used elsewhere in the Bible to describe an animal, tearing its prey to shreds. The judge is saying this. Stay with me. But I want us 
to look at something else, not to change this message, but to give us a fuller understanding, I would say, of God the judge, okay? So keep your finger here. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 28. Now, if this verse is familiar, don't turn your brain off, okay? Sometimes we hear a familiar version. Yeah, I know this one. This is good. All right? Hold with me. Especially as we look at the context, we're going to go till verse 34, right? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified... It's a legal term. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. You see, God the judge is the prosecutor. But for those who have been justified, God the judge is on your side. If God is for us, who can be against us? Or if the judge is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son. We think of the language of Psalm 50, verse 21, right? Being torn to shreds. There was someone torn to shreds. And that's why the judge can be for the justified. If this language is too violent or too over the top, then consider what Christ suffered for you. He was torn to shreds for your sin and for mine. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. I told you earlier, if the prosecution indicts you, you're toast. But what if the defense intercedes for you? In that defense is also God. 
Who is the one who condemns? Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, is your defense. He is the one that intercedes. In Psalm 50, we see God as prosecutor and judge, but in Romans 8, we see God as defense and judge. And so, as you have the certainty of God and prosecutor judging evil, you have the certainty of God and his defender, defense, I should say, justifying because that one has been declared righteous and there is no debate. There's no debate. It's done. Now stop and think about yourself. I want to start here with the Christian. Do you think about yourself in the way that God thinks about you? Do you say, but, but you, you don't know the sins of my past. You don't know the sins of my present. I hate them. I confess, but I will face this guilt for the rest of my life. And you can fill in the blank with all of your laundry list of sin. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Are you more of a God than God? Does your indictment trump his justification? If you've had the opportunity of having a child, either your own or another, get sick, and, and maybe this is more appropriate for, for a parent, I guess, but getting sick and getting sick overnight, you know, where, where you wake up, you hear them, and, and you go to their bed, and their sick is all around. And you, you smell it when you walk in, and you, you see it, and it's, it's, oh. You know, I would say that, you know, if, if, you've, if you're repulsed by that, I think that's very natural, right? <laughs> you don't want your kids sleeping in that. But at the same time, there is an element of pity and compassion that draws you to it. Why? Because you don't want them laying in their sick. Even if they're fast asleep, even if they're just like, oh, I don't want to wake them up. They're lying in their sickness. They're filth. And somehow, we as Christians understand that God does that really well at the point of salvation. That he can take us in and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness and, and he can forgive us. But then all of the sins afterwards, after we've accepted Christ as Savior, that God just kind of stands there with a stiff arm, almost like a parent who says, Ugh, you're sick, go in the bathroom and clean up and then I'll take your temperature. That is not the God we serve. He hates sin. But there was someone who took God's wrath on himself for you. And he, the judge, declares you righteous. You've been justified. If you don't think that's enough, 
Let's go back to Psalm 50. You're at Psalm 50? All right, look at the next psalm. Psalm 51. The heading I have on my Bible is A Contrite sinner, Sinner's Prayer for Pardon. For the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. What right does that man to have to add to the nation's songbook about God? Murderer, adulterer, coward, liar, E, all of the above. And without the justification of God, David could anticipate being torn to pieces. And so, we see in verse 23, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him who orders his way aright, I show the salvation of God. Revisiting the two groups, right? Sacrifice of thanksgiving. That sounds an awful lot like group one. Those who misunderstood. But then him who orders his way aright, that sounds an awful lot like group two. And if you're really careful, you could even say this sounds an awful lot like the fulfillment of the law. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. A right way of living towards God, a right way of living towards one another. God is judge, we see in Psalm 50. The mighty, righteous, loving, long-suffering judge. And he will either be your prosecutor, which verse 22 says, there will be none to deliver you from, or he will be your defender. In short, if you don't take anything else away from this, your judge wants an ongoing relationship with you. And that is unlike any judge I know of. Your judge wants an ongoing relationship with you. Your God indicts you for your sin, but offers himself as the judge, as the saving solution, and invites you to turn to him in your day of trouble. Your God has promised to tear you to shreds if you reject him. Yet he has given you his son, God the son, to take your place. And your God, having done all this, deserves a lifestyle of thanksgiving and holy living in response to his salvation. That's what verse 23 is. And so for some of you, perhaps, today is the day of salvation. Have you been going through the motions has your church life and life outside of church been perpetually and indefinitely contradictory? Like, you know, you got to do this, but, you know, it doesn't really touch the rest of life. And the sin that's in your life just really categorizes you. That's you. Maybe today is the day of salvation for you. It does not matter how much you know. It does not matter 
how often you've gone through the motions. Does God know you? And for others, today is the day where you view yourself as he views you. If you are in Christ, you are justified. Now, Romans chapter 6 is very careful to make sure that we understand that having been justified by God, we do not have a blank check to sin how we want. Right? Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, to be sure, at the end of Romans 5. But Romans 6 says, okay, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin so that grace abounds that much more? I mean, hey, if I have God's grace even, you know, to cover my sin, and even after I'm saved, my sin, God's grace covers that, can I just keep sinning more and more and more? And absolutely not. God forbid. Why? Because when God saves a person, he changes that person. There's a legal change. They are justified, but there's also a change in disposition and of value. That's sanctification. And by the way, if we could take one step further, today is the day that you view your spiritual family as God views you. This might step on toes. Who will bring a charge against the elect? How about you against your believing spouse? Do you bring a charge against them? How about against your believing parents or against your believing children? Would you bring a charge against those elect? You see, at times, it's easier to evaluate than it is to love. And we elevate the evaluation process. And then, once they've passed that litmus test, we can love them. When, in fact, for those who God has justified, our first response is love. If we were to continue reading through Romans 8, we got to verse 34. But verse 35 says what? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And I take pleasure in that nothing will separate me from the love of Christ. But that's just as true for your believing brothers and sisters in Christ as it is for you. That's what makes us a family. Even when sometimes we have some wonky family members. Maybe you're one of them. Maybe I'm one of them. But if that applies to me and you're in the family... That applies to you, too. So, Psalm 50 could be the greatest news. It could be the reassuring news. But it could also be very dark news if you choose to continue to forget God. There's still hope. In verse 23, there's hope Offered. There's hope offered, like we see in verse 14 and 15, but there's also hope offered in verse 22 and 23 for all parties involved. Would you relate to God the judge in a way that he wants to relate with you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are judge. We sang earlier, that we are frail children of dust and feeble as frail, but in you we trust and find you never to fail. 
Your mercies are so tender and they're how pure to the end because you are our maker, our defender, our redeemer, and our friend. God, we love you. And it's through our Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.